Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. Whoever is initiated by us, and follows us, and loves us, whether he is near or far, wherever he is, even if he is in the East and we are in the West, we nourish from the stream of love and give him light in his daily life. In this quote from one of the great Naqshbandi Sufi masters, we have a description of one of the natural laws of the universe how one action affects another at varying distances. How does this apply to spiritual learning? Dr. Stuart Bitkoff holds a doctorate in education and is an avid student of Sufi mysticism and the perennial philosophy. He is the author of The Ferryman's Dream, A Commuter's Guide to Enlightenment, and Sufism for the Western Seeker, which was nominated as a Book of the Year by Forward Magazine in the adult nonfiction religious category. Dr. Bitkoff is a frequent contributor to Sufism and Inquiry and Sacred Journey magazine and writes for multiple online entities, including the Philadelphia Spirituality Examiner, Wisdom Magazine, New Age Journal, and more. Today we'll explore spirituality as the ultimate kind of distance learning. Stuart, welcome back to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Why don't we begin by touching base for a moment on just the basics of Sufism for those who may be unfamiliar with this uh, tradition. What is Sufism and when and how did it evolve? Well, nothing, nothing like starting with the hardest question first. Um, Sufism is one of those things like trying to define what the meaning of life is or what love is. Um, the word Sufism itself, I think, originated in the late 1800s, according to Idris Shah. And it comes from, I think, a German word sounding like Suf, which is, which is a description of the woolen robes that certain ascetics wore. So it's really a label of sorts. And it's only been around now since the late 1800s. And when we talk about some of the major faiths, like Islam, there is a very strong Sufi uh, presence in Islam, where there are major orders that came out of that. Now, but Sufism itself pre-existed Islam. According to tradition, it's the religion before there was religion. Now, if we look at religion as a set of rules, procedures, and a methodology at which to reach the spiritual this form of knowing, if you will, it's a spiritual experience of the divine, pre-existed the first religion. Um, according to tradition, Abraham was the progenitor of the three monotheisms. And he was, this was the way he worshipped before there was Judaism or anything like that. It was direct perception direct connection with the divine. So Sufism, if you will, is a path 
a methodology in which the seeker or the traveler tries to connect up their inner knowing with the ultimate inner knowing of the universe and to use that in daily life. Mm, thank you so much for that, Stuart. So did uh, something or someone come along to help develop it then more in the late 1800s, as you mentioned before? Well, there have been... See, in our Western culture, we're just learning about lots of things that have existed in Eastern cultures, religions and traditions. If I say the name Rumi, most people know who Rumi was, a great mystical poet who lived, you know, hundreds of years ago. He was one of the great Sufis. I've called him the pop star of, uh, of Sufism. He's the one people tend to turn to the most, I think, uh, in the West. Oh, yeah, also Ghazali, Al-Ghazali, who was a famous theologian who's credited with saving, um, I, I forgot which faiths in, in his country, there are also there are great Sufis, uh, some uh, Gerber, the guy with alchemy. And Idris Shah in his book, The Sufi, lists a whole bunch of some of the Sufi giants, people like Attar, who is a great poet. And he talks about, in the book, The Sufis, how many of these esoteric traditions are really, I would say, outgrowths of this mainstream of mystical knowing which is the heritage of humanity. The basic underlying point is that there's an interconnectedness between all the religions. There's an interconnectedness between all the people. And the way to perceive that and connect with that and perceive with the underlying unity in the universe, which scientists today have defined as some kind of super energy. I mean, they've de defined God for us, the, the physicists, that there's an interconnecting super-energy in everything. And the mystics, if you will, or the Sufis, have been saying this since the beginning of time. And they yes. connect with this and use this capacity, use this force, energy, if you talk about the Star Wars kind of thing, the force, have been using this since the beginning of time. Thank you. Thank you for that. We're going to talk more about uh, mystical connections across traditions in a little bit. I wanted to go a little further, though, in your, in your experience of Sufism, because, let's say, most religions have a mystical tradition as part of them. This might be called the mystical tradition of Islam as we know it today. But what drew you to this one? Because you came out of a different background. Right. I, I was born and raised Jewish. I grew up in New York City in Manhattan. And on my grandfather's side, we were descendants of the prophets of Israel. There were rabbis, and actually some pretty famous rabbis in the old country before Hitler uh, took away the lands. and Not Hitler, I'm sorry, the Tsar took away the lands, and Hitler came along and killed a lot of my, our descendants. So there's a long lineage of this on one side of my family. And as I grew up in New York City, none of that made any sense to me wearing, you know, the uh, saying things in Hebrew, going to synagogue, all these old stories of things that happened 2,000 years ago, how great the Jewish people were, didn't make any sense because I was growing up in an environment where that was pretty aggressive. You had to fight every day. And if you said you were Jewish, you got beaten up. So to me, there was no interconnection with all of that. And so for many years, 
religion was the kind of thing I was, I wouldn't say disinterested in. It wasn't high on my list. It wasn't that I was against it or anything. It was just one of those things that had very little meaning to me. And it wasn't until my mid-20s when, you know, I found a career, I found a job, I went to work, I got a little older, I started writing poetry, I started exploring, this was the 60s, people started exploring other parts of themselves that I started exploring another part of myself that I didn't even know existed. I didn't know I could write poetry until I was like 21 years old. I didn't know I had any of that in me. And slowly that began to grow. And then one day at work, I ran into a fellow, and he turned out to be one of my lifelong friends. And we were talking about spiritual things. And then after a couple of months, he says that his spiritual teacher wants to meet me. Okay. As I said, at this point, I'm not interested in, in religion. I have a job. I'm just married. I just began doctoral study at NYU. And I thought that religion would be something at some point I would get to possibly after I finished my doctorate. So we get some bag lunches, and lunchtime when we go meet this fellow at work. Then now we were working at the time in a state-funded psychiatric hospital. And so we're used to states of consciousness. We're used to scientific inquiry. And the, the gentleman that I meet was a physician, a psychiatrist, came from Pakistan. And in the initial meeting... He answered every question I had about religion, every question I had about why people use religion to fight against each other, and what, what all the ills and all the suffering of the world is about. And on top of that, he bestowed a spiritual caress through the light upon me that lasted for 24 hours. So for 24 hours, I was literally stoned high, on God. I was connected to everything. And that changed the course of my life. And now this was something that was palpable, something you, you felt physically. This was an energy. In that room, we all know what heat waves feel like coming off a stove. In that room, there was a, as you said, a palpable energy force that was emanating from him and through him and around him. And that was, I guess, reflected to me and the other fellows in the room. And that caress, if you will, that passing of energy mm. was the real teaching. While we danced with words about why men use war to fight with each other and this and that, and he answered the questions on that level because I had many questions, mm. the real answer came on a spiritual level, and was with me for 24 hours, you know, connected to everything, happy, joyous, wondrous. And he said that was a gift, you know, from God, and it would last that long. And so that got me started. This was, like as I said, wasn't anything I was looking for. It came looking for me and changed the course of my life. That's so beautifully said, Stuart. Thank you for recounting that. Uh, it's a great, great story and great images you raised there. And you mentioned uh, some time ago the word meaning, and I guess the difficulty in finding meaning in, in certain things you encountered as a young person. How 
then did Sufism help you to find meaning and, and continue to do so? Well, basically, I was building up my own life at that point. You see, one of the requisites in all of this learning is that you meet the minimum requirements of the average person in your society. So at that point, I had done that. I had gone to school. I had found a profession I was interested in. I was working at it. I had gotten married. We had an apartment. I don't know if we had a child on the way by that time or not. So I had met the minimum requirements for that. Now, earlier on, prior to all of that, I spent many a dark hour, you know, wondering what this was all about. You know, I always knew that there was a part of me that was, I don't want to say different, but it was different. I mean, I played sports, I had girlfriends, I, you know, I went to school, I did all of those kinds of things. But there was always a part of me that was empty, lonely, empty, whatever, waiting to be filled. And what filled it was the light of God. So that was the, the missing piece, you see. It, it helped integrate things further and helped me to become more, I hate to use the word productive, but I was. I became more productive. I learned through over the years of studying how to minimize my time in a negative zone, mm. how to, you know, how to use positive energy, all kinds of spiritual kinds of things that we see on the Internet, all these different techniques. You know, we were shown those things very early on. Those were very big early steps. Then we were shown something additional, which was how to connect with this energy force that united everything and that you were part of and that could lift you up, you know, turn you upside down and make you do things you never thought you could do. I'm smiling as you're saying that because it is, it's wonderful. So now then, let's talk a bit about Sufi learning. How does it take place? Once again, this is part of the heritage of humanity. So when we say Sufi and we use that, all the major religions have this inner path of knowing. There's a difference between external and internal knowing. The external reality of a religious form is different. Catholics go to church on Sunday, Jews go on Saturday. That's the external form. But the internal current, because they're all part of the monotheisms, is the same. So this is all part of the heritage of humanity. And what Sufi learning is about is how to make you more productive in your day-to-day -day life. You know, the, the, the basic premise being what good is spiritual knowledge, spiritual knowing, or wisdom if it's not put to practical use. So what you need is a couple of things. You need a student, you need a teacher, and you need the grace or the baraka of a path. So what you have, and you have the same thing in all traditions. You need a student who's ready, willing to learn, teacher who can impart this, and then you need the grace or the energy of the learning that's going on. And those things are essential elements. Now, in our discussion today, well, what I learned, what we'll get to, is how that grace, energy, and learning can be done at distances, as well as sitting in a room where, in the beginning, 
we met with our teacher, I think, for about three and a half years. There was a whole group of us. And he would answer any questions. He would know things about us. I mean, I, I hate to use words like reading minds. Um, he, he could do all of that. He could project the energy so we would call him or show up at his door. You know, he did things that were just... In my experience, and even today's, as I've grown older, still astounding. Things like one of the things, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that happened was one day I went home for lunch, and we had a the, our oldest daughter Holly had just been born, and we, we had a small apartment. So just before going back to work at the hospital, I took ten minutes to meditate in the car before going back to work. I had a stressful job, as all jobs are in a hospital. So I took 10 minutes to say the prayer of submission. And as I was saying it, it was like I put my hand in an electric um, socket. It was like, you know, I got electrocuted. It just stunned and hurt me. And that had never happened to me before. Usually the prayer was a source of inspiration and soft, beautiful energy. So this shocked me. I was afraid to say the prayer after that. So at the end of the day, I went over to the teacher's office because he was a physician in, in the facility, and I knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and he looked at me and said, sometimes the teacher has to be careful how he reflects the light. He said that before I even said anything. So what that meant to me was is that he was doing something with this energy field at that moment with me, hmm. and he did too much of it. I appreciate what you shared before, making the distinction between, um, you know, when you go to church on Sunday or Saturday, uh, I call that, you know, part of the institutional church, and then there's the actual spiritual core of the teachings of all religions, as you mentioned before, and as well as the mystical traditions where they tend to come alive. In fact, you've referred to um, Sufism as the path or the way. It's interesting to me that the original followers of Jesus were also called followers of the way. Uh, so there's a commonality there. And could you share just a, a little more detail about, you know, when the student and the teacher are together? Are there specific texts? Are there specific, you mentioned a prayer. Are there other prayers? What is the journey like in that kind of learning? One of the things I neglected to mention is that the teaching is always updated in a modern form. What that means is, is that there are always living teachers. Because the instruction that I needed in New York City in 1970, spiritual instruction, would be different than what I needed 2,000 years ago in Israel. See, Jesus is revered among the Sufis as a very high Sufi. And what our teacher said was, is that those parts of the Bible that relate to the inner teachings were left out. Similarly, the thing with, with Muhammad, there was an inner circle, where this inner teaching, what we were learning about, which was in years past was called the secret doctrine, what was taught in the Great Pyramid. And basically what that was, was how to connect spiritually. One day the teacher said, look, if we were in another country right now, or another culture, you wouldn't be asking me questions. The teaching would be mind to mind. But in this culture, what's required is that you ask questions and I give you answers. 
And so that was the, I guess, the format in which it occurred, but the real teaching was this spiritual knowing current that was going on. And what that said to the, me as the student was, hey, this is it. And what the exercises and the prayers were designed to do were two things. It's basically a two-pronged effort. One is that our mind is cluttered with things that we need to live in the world. Every society has its own patterns of indoctrination and patterns of living, let's say. Well, I won't even, indoctrination has a negative word to it, but patterns of living. And that these things keep our mind full. And what we have to learn to do is still them for a moment so something else can come forward. Now, there's something else is the spiritual awareness. So while we're doing exercises which are geared to stilling the everyday things like meditation, if you focus on a candle, that, you know, the, the wick of the candle, you're focusing on that. So your day-to-day consciousness is focusing on that. So the inner part of you can come forward. So there was a second piece where we were learned, to, learned how to connect with the light this energy, which, we were, which was the closest thing to God in this universe. We learned how to let that come forward because a part of us, the, our heart, was made up of that. And the dust of selfish living in the world covered that over because we're all selfish. It's the nature of living in the world. We have to worry about what we're going to eat, we have to worry about our kids, we've got to worry about this, we've got to worry about that. That's part of the experience that we're here. So what we have to do is still that for a moment or wipe away the dust from our heart and let this other part, which is the light, reflect it off our hearts like a mirror and let it shine out. In a lot of traditions, they talk about chakras. In the Sufi tradition, they talk about Latifa. These are spiritual centers. So we had exercises, and there were prayers, and there were things that were geared on how to awaken those centers. And some of those things occurred while I was asleep. I wanted to tell you, I love the idea of using the phrase distance learning, and I have my little fingers doing quotation signs now, (laughs) Um, in the spiritual context. I thought that was brilliant. So I wanted to talk about the article that you co-wrote, Distance Learning and Direction from a distance of the Sufi mystics. It's posted on the Technology of the Heart blog at mysticsaint.info. Let's talk about this concept of distance learning uh, regarding uh, spirituality. It's a fascinating topic. And can you share a little about the article and what it explores? Sure. Sadiq Alam, he's the editor of this blog, and we've known each other for a while. And I proposed this idea to him, and I dragged my feet. He wanted me to write an article, and I just dragged my feet about it. So finally he agreed. If I sent him some information, he would write this article, which he wrote a lot of it. Half of it is material I gave him. But his, his viewpoint is what he adds to this is much more historical background and knowing of things that I don't necessarily know, like the way, like the way of you ways. I know who Uways was. He was a contemporary of the Prophet. And what the Prophet said, even though Uways never met Muhammad, Muhammad spoke highly of Uways and said, now he is as learned as anybody in my circle. 
because he's received the teaching. And so Sadiq brought in this other whole area because he's a Muslim. He has all of this other information. And he brought together the, the kinds of things that I knew about that related to the teaching in a modern Sufi school, which, to be quite honest, you don't see much about this. I'm not saying it's unique, but you don't see much about it. You're seeing more now because the influence has spread to uh, the Western world, but you don't see much about this. And particularly, you're not going to see a lot about the inner dynamics of what exercises to use and what kinds of things like that because it's individual. It's prescribed. So while I can offer out the prayer of submission, which my teacher gave us, and he quite clearly said, offer it to anybody who wants it. And what he said is, offer, you know, anybody who asks you a question, answer it as best you can. Other people are more secretive. And also then also you have the Sufi orders where things are very formal in some of them. You have to wear certain clothing. You have to do certain kinds of things. The presentation that I participated in, I would not have participated in a Sufi order where I had to wear, wear a certain hat and garment and all of that. Judaism was filled with that, and I refused to do that. So to me, what I needed was a presentation that was more modern. My teacher wore a, a coat and a tie and a shirt. You know, what, what we wore was unimportant. What was, what was in your heart was what was important. So this article to, begins to talk about learning at a distance or action at a distance from a spiritual framework because I get a lot of inquiries because, you know, I put a lot of stuff on the Internet where a lot of people looking for a teacher. A lot of people, I get inquiries from people from South Africa, from Spain, from Australia, and they, they don't have a home group, if you will, you know, and, and they're looking for this mystical Sufi connection. And over the years, it grew in me to the point where, well, this is an essential part of spiritual learning, and while it doesn't really satisfy the hunger for a traveler who wants a teacher, a physical teacher, I'm adding something or I'm trying to add that, but you're missing something also. This learning can take place anytime, anywhere, even on a level you're not consciously aware of. Because all you have to do is go to the traditional texts, and they talk about that, that the quote that, I, that I, we have from Bahadin, Naskband, I mean, uh, I'll read that. Whoever is initiated by us and follows us and loves us, whether he is near or far, wherever he is, even, even if he is in the East and we are in the West, we nourish from the stream of love and give him light in his daily life. What Bahadin is saying is, it doesn't matter where you are. We, we are going to nourish you with the stream of life. Now, is this poetic? Or is this factual? And in my experience with what I, what I learned through, because the second school that I went to was distant learning kind of school, was that this is factual. 
Yes, it is, and it's and it's amazing how the internet has allowed this kind of connection and the kind of communication that you and I are sharing right now. You mentioned in uh, the article you referred to the spiritual plane that there is no time or distance, and it does appear that our, especially our current communication technologies uh, help us to completely cross those. Uh, it's not the only way to, because you're also talking about energy and the energy of love, which is pervasive and, and also timeless and eternal. So now then, what is the role of teachers in this scenario? Well, the teacher is an exemplar. In our culture, we don't have many people who take the form of the wise one like in the old village, whether it was a woman or whether it was a man, where people would go to for answers or who sat at the right hand of the king and offered wisdom in, in times of trial. We don't have that role of who is, the, who is the wise man. We have lots of clergy. We have lots of psychologists. We have lots of social workers. We have all kinds. We have lawyers, all kinds of specialists who we can go to to get our questions answered, but the example of a wise one, someone who has awakened or has their own spirituality raised to the level that they can use that in everyday life, we don't have very many examples of that in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, if we do, they tend to be on television and they tend to be selling thousands of books and you know, hundreds of people pay hundreds of dollars to go see them. Hmm. But I'm talking about the average person in a community. So that's the first role of the teacher. It's an exemplar. It's showing you what's possible. Look, you've, you, ha you haven't enhanced this part of your toolkit, if you will. You know, you've left this out if you haven't done that. And this part will actually make the other parts work better. And what the teacher does, the teacher knows what the student needs. Um, and they know this by inner cognition and the grace of the path. Now, not all, if you will, Sufis are teachers. There's a whole different aspect of what the Sufi work is. According to tradition, what the, what the Sufis or the mystics, the hidden mystics do, is they take the light of God and they shine it all across the planet. And this light is the life force, the energy. And if it wasn't presented across the earth for three days, life would wither and die. And also that they are responsible for the plan for humanity. And that there's a hierarchy in this, like a, a corporation. Al Hujriri, in his book, The Kashaf al-Wajib, which is the unveiling of the veil, described what this hierarchy was, what this corporation was, and his book was the first Persian treatise on Sufism, written, I don't know, 900 years ago, and this, this cat, um, Al Hujriri, was the teacher of my teacher. So my teacher went to Al Hujriri's tomb guy who'd been dead for 900 years and got his teaching orders from him. Now, the point of this whole thing is that tradition has it that the Sufis are the guardians for the plan for humanity. Now, when you look out there, you say, I mean, there's a plan for this mess out there? 
um, and that they take role, they take action at certain points, and at other points they let things happen, and that God, if you will, has servants who have things happen, you know, on the hands of this planet. But the life force, the life of what gives us all energy, this light, they are the ones who distribute it around the planet and are tending the plan for humanity. This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually-based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Stuart Bitkoff, student of Sufism and author of A Commuter's Guide to Enlightenment, Sufism for the Western Seeker, and The Ferryman's Dream. Stay with us. I thought I did what's right. I thought I had the answers I thought I chose the surest road But that road brought me here So I put up a fight And told you how to help me Now just when I have given up the truth is coming clear You Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with student of Sufism and author Dr. Stuart Bitkoff about distance learning and Sufi spirituality. Now, Stuart, when we talk about distance learning, most of us would immediately think of an online learning program. So discussing distance learning in terms of mystical learning across time and space is really engaging. Um, you have said that your teacher's teacher was from the 11th century, and my first teacher has been uh, credited for beginning the common era, but I've also been hugely influenced, as listeners may know, by Saints Francis and Claire of Assisi, who were 13th century, and I've written books about them, among other saints, and drawn from their wisdom for today in a very personal way, as though we've always known each other. 
They speak to me across time and space this way. Uh, so Sufis then also find common ground this way with perhaps other faiths, uh, including the, the mystical tradition of the saints in the, in the Catholic faith. Can you share your thoughts on this? Peter Shana's book, The Sufi, talks about St. Francis of Assisi having a Sufi teacher during the Crusades. He talks about a Sufi teacher who at the same time had power over birds and other kinds of things that St. Francis did. I think that there's a commonality between many of the religions. I think that that's what it talks to this point. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's Jewish, Christian, or Islamic, or Hindu, that there's an interconnection someplace, and that it's always been there. And, you know, in this crazy world that we live in, you know, we're looking in all these other places for what our interconnectedness is. And it's right in front of us and it's right inside us. And people are using this, you know, to keep us apart, certainly with the terrorists, the fanatics, and what, what's going on. You know, once you've had a drink of this rare wine, you know what it is because you know because it's part of you. And you know you've always been this. And when I say this is part of the heritage of humanity, you know, the great teachers who came to us, were they all crazy? Were they all lying? You know, these were respected people. Muhammad, before his call, was a respected merchant who everybody went to to settle disputes. You know, they called him the unlettered prophet because he couldn't read or write, yet his revelation was in beautiful Arabic poetry. He couldn't read or write. He was illiterate. And the revelation was that way. And, you know, people are just looking in the wrong place. You know, we're all human beings, and we all are spiritual. And not to spend some time looking at that, that is the problem. Now, in terms of distance learning and that there's no time and space, you know, you see thousands of people, you know, where I live out here, there's churches all over the place. Every Sunday, people are going to church. Now, some of them are going because they have to, but a lot of them are going because it's joyous. This was a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago. You know, it's the same thing with the, with, with the Jewish scriptures, or the, you know, the, the Islamic scriptures. These things are transcendent and across time. Now, you come back to the heart throughout your work when speaking of the light and the source. And many would think that the light and our source are situated or generated elsewhere, somehow outside of ourselves. Um, is that partly where we're misled uh, spiritually? And can you focus on this connection? Okay. Absolutely. Radio waves. Do you see them? They're all around us. Turn it on, boom, you got music. It was all around you that whole time. It was coming through your walls. It's coming through you. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. What we talked about was that inside of each of us, there's a center, the center of our soul. You know, we're made of spiritual fabric. Our soul is made of a spiritual fabric, and inside of that, there's a center. That's called the heart. 
the heart in Sufi terminology, is the closest thing in the universe to the light itself. So just because we don't see this life-giving energy around us, we don't see, oh, it's raining where I am today. I don't see the sun's rays, but the sun's shining out here. Not as strong, but it's coming through. You know, what my teacher used to say is, look, the sun is still shining at night, even though you don't see it. It's on the other side of the world. And so this life-giving energy is all around us. Nowadays, we have um, all these electrical wires, <laughs> you know, microwave energy, light energies, and we have all of these things that we scientifically accept as being present, but we don't see them. Hmm. And why do we believe a scientist and not a theologian or a mystic? Yeah, that's a very good point, because a scientist would tell us our eyes can only perceive about 10%. You know, the visible light range is only about 10% of what's out there. I love this quote from your article about mystics that I'd like to share. It goes, Mystics are not themselves. They do not exist in selves. They move as they are moved. Talk as words come. See with sight that enters their eyes. I always appreciated the mystical aspect of traditions. Um, I've been known to say that in the in the Catholic Church, I have found the mystical tradition to be almost like an antidote along the timeline. Where the institutional church has uh, great problems and conflicts, there arose these great mystics at that time with the core spirituality and the so many practical answers that still apply today. Now, I guess generally regarded Sufism would be the mystical tradition of Islam. Um, to your experience, how does it operate differently from the religion of Islam as, as well as inform it? Well, I'm not familiar, that familiar with the religion of Islam because I, I never practiced it. I certainly read the Koran probably 30 times and studied it for many years. But once again, we're talking about the inner knowing. There are prayers that I say that I was given in the, in the mystical school. So to me, my religion is God. Um, and I realize I'm different than a lot of people. And also, I have a friend, Andrew, who's a psychologist, and he's talking to me about what's going on in the Middle East now. I think it's, I'm not sure if it's Iran killing thousands of Sufis because see Sufis don't follow the traditional viewpoint how is that well the letter of the law whatever the rule of the law is you know they believe in all people if they have a good heart are to be respected and honored you know in the Sharia law um, I saw on the Internet somebody talking about that in, in a European country, that if people don't follow that, they're wrong. And in some countries, if you don't follow that form, it's like a traditionalism, traditional form, I believe, um, you're wrong and you'll be killed. You know, this is going on now, today. So there are different sects, if you will, S-E-C-T-S, or versions of Islam. I mean, most people who are Islamic are not that severe 
Mm. Uh, certainly, the, my teacher was a Muslim. I never met a more loving man in my life. And he didn't require me to pray on any given time and day. He just re- required that I be a good human being. And he gave me some tools for that. So the difference, see, to me, is that there's an inner knowing, an inner being that manifests itself in the world, which is different than going and saying my prayers and doing all of those kinds of things. It being raised as a Jew, the, the hard part for me was wearing the yarmulke and the filling things that you had to wear and wearing a talus around me and doing all of those things that I couldn't connect with the ritual of it. But what I could connect with was loving God. And so when, when we look at what's the difference between or how does it fit in, how does Sufism fit in Islam, a lot of people would say it doesn't, and that's why they were killing them in Iran. You can bend anything you want to use it any way you want with this. And we've been seeing this since the beginning of time. I don't know if that answered the question. Well, I, w- I want to thank you for your your words. They certainly touch the heart, and um, you know, you mention outcomes in your in your articles, and how do we measure outcomes? And you know, you're sort of talking about that now in terms of uh, you know how we can look at things regarding a spiritual progress. Are there outcomes to that oh, we can gauge? Absolutely. And as human beings, we all want to know how we're doing. <laughs> all the time we want to know it. Part of us always wants to know that. So I asked my teacher very early on, how am I doing? And he laughed. And because uh, that was his way. And he said, this is the criteria you use. Do you think of God more often now than you did before you met me? And I said, yes. He said, well, then you're making progress. And as I traveled a little further, I realized that there was a way to tune into my heart, my own inner knowing, and ask it a question to say, what will this thing bring me closer to God or distance me from God? And that was another way I could measure what I was doing. Because there was a part of me that knows what I need. Part of me that came here with a life plan a purpose. There's part of me that knows, you know, if I'm crazy, knows everything it needs to know. I just haven't learned to connect with that, you know, enough. So what I can do is now ask a question. If I do this, you know, will that bring me closer or distance me? Or a member of my family will ask me something like that, and I'll be able to do it. But Mm -hmm. the easiest way to measure your progress was the first way, and that was what my teacher said. Do you think of God more often than you did yesterday before you began studying all this material? And that's the only measure, how close you get to God. Thank you so much, Stuart. Now, we have a little time left here, and I'm wondering um, if you wouldn't mind sharing about another article you wrote about removing the veil 
if you could share some of that uh, with our listeners as I imagine a more perhaps a practical way uh, to apply some principles to their life. Most people are, are familiar with veils, seeing Middle Eastern maidens with a veil across their face to hide their beauty and to um, protect, I guess, their innocence. I mean, a veil serves a lot of purposes. You know, um, and Hafiz, who is a great Sufi teacher, I open up the article with that, says, you yourself are under your own veil. Okay? What does that mean? You yourself are under your own veil. That means I'm my own, my own worst enemy in some ways. You know, that's a modern way of saying that. Then there's another quote, which is a traditional one. The lower self prevents you from remembering God. From our viewpoint, the soul has a higher and a lower nature. The lower nature takes care of our day-to-day stuff, the stuff we need to get up in the morning, go to work, eat, cook, and all of that. Then the higher nature is the stuff that talks about these higher concepts, God, and all of that. So the lower self prevents you from remembering God. While I'm busy worrying if I'm going to get to work on time, <laughs> I'm worrying. <laughs> and you've written a great book about that. <laughs> well, that's why I say that, because that's about everyday spirituality. Right. And so you yourself are under your own veil. That's the way we're hardwired. Now, we can talk forever about why we're hardwired that way. But the simplest way is, that hardwiredness, part of me is tied to the world, and part of me is tied to the other side and God, creates a friction, an unease. This friction pushes me further on to get me to go and find and want to find out what's going on. All right? So that's the reality. That's the world we're born into. Now, why it's set up that way, well, we can talk about that, too. But it's set up that way. So, removing your own veil, what we want to do is remove our own roadblock or the door that stands in our way. And the mystical process, and I talked a little bit about that earlier, was twofold. One was to still the lower soul, and they call that quieting the nafs, N-A-F-S, which is the ego and all these crazy thoughts that I'm great and good and I'm wonderful, good looking. I should have everything I want. <laughs> how to quiet, you know, how to quiet that, so something else can come forward. Now, the something else has two aspects. It has to be awakened. You know, inside us, the flame or the candle is real low. But sometimes it jumps forward, and we just know that hey, there's something special out there. But it has to be awakened. And then, once it's awakened, our task becomes to remember who we are. We're also the son and daughter of a king. So the process is about remembering who we are and forgetting. We forget because we're tied up in the world, and then we have to remember again that we're son and daughter of a king, and we have a noble spirit. Now, removing the veil talks about the process on how you do that. There are exercises. The first thing we learned to do in the, in the school was, the first school was to monitor your thoughts. Which thoughts gave you a hard time? So mm. at the end of the day, we would sit down and write down the thoughts that gave you a hard, give you a hard time. 
spend 10 or 15 minutes and just write down one or two or three and share them with the teacher. Now, if you don't have a teacher, well, you know, you could figure out what they are. So in my case, driving to work every day was a real pain because it was through New York City traffic and all of that kind of a thing. So this was a real problem. So when I was at home, my drive was over, but I'm still worrying about the next day and, and what the day was like and all of this and all of that. So I had to learn how to diffuse that. Not only was I wasting energy on that, but it kept me from doing something else. The something else that we're talking about is awakening what's inside of me. So the something else could be sitting down meditating on the light. Mm. As you're driving through that commute. We're doing it at home at night. So one, I stilled the thought that the drive was driving me crazy. So then I could use that energy to focus on the light at home and then send it out to other people. Mm. Or then learn, as you're saying, how to do it while doing it to work. That took a while for me to learn how to do that. Would you say that um, in removing the veil that this duality then goes away because then light or God is in all of these activities, our daily activities? The duality is always there. But as you travel further, you get less and less caught up in it. This other part of you becomes stronger and stronger. You learn how to turn into that more often. You don't let the physical nature of this experience at certain times take you away from the inner part of it. Um, you know, you've disarmed it already. Mm. You know, you've won your battle. It's like when you, stop, when you stop smoking, when you learn how to eat, you know, when you first stop smoking, you know, the urges to have that cigarette are real strong in the beginning. Mm. But then they get less and less, and then maybe five years later you have an urge because you're in a bar and someone's smoking and you have an urge, but only stays for a, for a split second. It's the same thing with the duality. You, you know, you're human. So these urges pop up, but less and less so, so this other part of you can come forward. Hmm. Stuart, thank you so much for that. Um, as we come toward the end of the interview, I just wanted to let listeners know that all of your website and contact and book information will be posted online at godspeedinstitute.com shortly. And uh, before we close, I just wanted to ask if there may be any f last you know, words or thoughts or uh, suggestions or a blessing, um, perhaps, for our, our listeners. If, you, if, you're, you know, if you're looking for a path, just ask the universe, ask God. Start talking to God or start talking to whatever you think the universe is and ask for whatever you need and then at some time and at some place you'll be get granted it just open the lines of communication thank you so much Stuart for being on the program today it's always a distinct pleasure speaking with you uh, and also learning from you uh, please stay in touch and I hope to hear from you again soon in the future with more projects and and more articles and topics. And thank you listeners for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. 
The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone, simply go to godspeedinstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at godspeedinstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.